And Donovan is not just a college student, but he is kind of paying it forward as well because Donovan's a volunteer and a small group leader in our preteen ministry. And so the story just kind of unfolds and unfolds. So let's jump in this morning, put a couple rumors. I've had a couple people ask me if I have a job interview later today. And um, I totally do. Um, no, I, I just felt like wearing a suit. And, um, and you should know this too. I'm going to wear a suit next weekend uh, because our junior high pastor, Annie McLaren, she will be married one week from today. She's getting married a week from yesterday. Isn't that amazing? And so she's marrying an incredible guy. Uh, he's probably in this room somewhere, Josh Newfeld. And I'm going to make sure next week we get a picture of her and her newly husband on Sunday morning so you can see how that was. It's, it's amazing. Uh, I've been in this mood with Annie getting married of pretending that I'm an expert at being married and, and calling her into my office and giving her nuggets of advice because I'm so wise. Um, but one thing that, um, has, that I was reminded of this week in particular was when Jenny and I were engaged, we had the great privilege. Her parents were so generous and paid for us to go to premarital counseling, and we went for about six months. It was an incredible time. And one day, I don't recall what we were talking about during the actual session, but on the way out, our therapist said to us, I think you guys should go grab a cup of coffee. I want you to start dreaming. I want you to start thinking about that your, your own families, where you've come from. What are the really great things? What are the things you're going to want to keep? But I also want you to dream about what weren't so great. Or what are some things you want to change? Because you're different from your family, but you're still connected to them. I want you to start doing that. That was an incredible conversation that has continued for us. And I think this kind of conversation about evaluating where things are at, what's going well, what should we keep doing, uh, what do we need to change, these are conversations that oftentimes we have at beginning moments in life, when something new starts. So whether that's you, you go to college and, and you, you ask yourself the question, what kind of person do I want to be? What do I want to keep from my life to this point? What needs to change? I think that's what's behind New Year's resolutions at times. When you get married, when you have children, when you retire, when you move, this is a normal thing for many of us, that when we hit a new beginning in our life, we evaluate and we ask ourselves, what is going well? What do we want to keep? But what needs to change as well? Friends, we are in the second week in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts in the scripture in very many ways is a new beginning in the story of God. Jesus has died. Uh, he has been risen from the dead. He has told his disciples in his life and even after his resurrection that he will leave them someday and that his spirit will come on them and then they will know what to do. It's a new beginning. And, and just like the new beginnings in our life and just like the advice that was given to me and to Jenny as we began something new, the Matisich family, Jeff and Jenny, we are going to see the same kind of evaluation happening. Specifically in Acts chapter 2, we are going to see that there's some things that are going to change. In this new development in the story of God, there's some clear things that start changing. There's new ways of doing Christianity. But we also are going to see some things that remain. We are going to see something specifically this morning that remains from the very beginning pages of the Bible, continues through the story of God, and still has meaning and purpose for us today. And you just saw it. 
the idea of Donovan and John and the relationship that they have. The thing that will remain that we're going to talk about this morning is the idea of intergenerational relationships. Will you pray with me? God, we pray this morning that you would speak to us, that no one in this room would be different, that everyone in this room would be different as a result of being here this morning. God, that we wouldn't have anything routine about it, that we come into this room to worship you, to hear from you, and we leave this room changed people. I pray that for myself. I pray that for my brothers and sisters in this room. pray that you would open our eyes, even if things might seem difficult. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Before we read the scripture this morning, Pastor Greg is going to go over different parts of of chapter 2, but here's what's happened. Uh, We find ourselves in the very beginning of chapter 2, the disciples, those that were closest to Jesus, are waiting in a place called the upper room. They're waiting for this spirit that Jesus said was going to come onto them, and they really didn't know what that meant, but they were just waiting, and they were praying, and they were just waiting for this thing to happen. And when all of a sudden, the day of Pentecost, those of us who know church, or know the Bible, you've been at church for a while, the day of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples, and in this upper room, we read a dramatic scene, a dramatic scene that says there, that, that, that when people were talking, there were flames coming off of their mouths, literal flames, tongues of fire. Flames are coming off their mouths and they start speaking in different languages. Languages that they didn't know, but totally coherent because it says there was a crowd who could see what was happening and it was such a bizarre scene that the crowd that was watching this Pentecost, this coming of the Spirit on the disciples, are noticing languages that they knew. And and they knew these men by reputation and they knew that, how do they know this language? How do they know this? And so the excuse or the, the, the kind of logic that as people were seeing these tongues of fire and they were hearing these people speak in different languages that they did not know, everyone who could see was watching and they thought, you know, they're drunk. That was the rationale. That the scene was so dramatic that the only thing that made sense to them was that these men must be drunk. With that in mind, chapter 2, verse 14, Peter, one of the eleven, addresses the crowd. If you'd like, you can stand, please, for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. I guess if it was noon, it, was, it would have been possible. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
This is the word of God. You could be seated. Dramatic scene in Acts 2. And I told you there's a couple things that change, and there's one thing we're going to look at that remains. Let me explain a couple of the changes because I think they're incredible, and Pastor Gray is going to go into more detail on some of these. But the first thing that changes in Acts 2 is that um, we move from understanding God from one nation to all people. Let me explain this. If you're familiar with the Bible in, in the Old Testament, you know that God has a chosen people. That God chose the, the, the nation of Israel and the Jewish people, and he said, I'm going to have a special relationship with you. And, and the relationship that God has with his particular group of people, through that relationship, he is going to demonstrate to the rest of the world who he is and what it's like to be in relationship with God. It, it's a pr- the primary relationship is the nation of Israel, is the Jewish people. Right? And that's what makes Jesus so controversial, because that was the way it worked. That was the special relationship. In fact, uh, there, there's all kinds of stories about how special they are and how chosen they are. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he starts hanging out with people who aren't Jewish. He's hanging out with Samaritan women. He's hanging out with people who aren't of the chosen people. And it's starting to really frustrate, especially the religious people, the religious authorities of that day, because it messed with their system. It messed with their idea of how it works, because that wasn't how they had come to understand God. And in Acts 2, something that changes is we have this demonstration that no longer, no longer is God having one nation as his chosen people, but rather he has now spread his chosenness to the entire world. God goes global. That's the significance of the languages. Like the Spirit comes on the, on the, the disciples, they're waiting there, and the very first thing that happens is they start speaking different languages, symbolizing to those who are around that, that this Spirit, that this God who has come on them, this new way of God being present in this world, it's for everyone. It's no longer just for one particular nation. It's now for everyone, every ethnicity, every language group in the world, everyone. God goes global. It's a significant change. It's a significant change. And aren't we thankful for this change? Because just look around in this room. Because if this change didn't happen, this room doesn't exist. And I, the likelihood of this reaching, this gospel reaching me, is pretty unlikely because I'm not Jewish. And I imagine that many of you in this room are not either. So the first change we see, something that changes in the book of Acts, is this idea of one nation to now all people, all, the whole world, the whole globe. And another change is the location. Right? Up until this point, if you wanted to connect with God, the primary place you did that was in the temple. God had a physical location. In fact, the temple system was really complicated. Depending on your gender, your age, your education, you had different sections that you were allowed to go in. And the temple system, that was the, the place, the physical place for God's presence. You went there and you met God there. In Acts 2, a change that we see is no longer God's presence confined or limited to the physical location of the temple, but his presence comes on a group of people, a community of people. In a random room, God's presence moves from the temple to the people. Now, this is a significant change, but it's a change, I'm afraid, I think we don't recognize enough. 
I am trying our hardest, Jenny and I are trying our hardest with our boys to help them understand that we, that daddy works at a church building. And on Sunday morning, we're going to the church building. And when we drive around town, isn't that a pretty church building? Friends, because we have Old Testament tendencies to somehow believe that God's presence is super special here in the physical location of church. And we forget that church, the very definition of church, is no longer limited to just the place. In fact, it's different. It's ecclesia. It's the gathered community that God's presence is present when we gather together, which means that I could have a few people in my house this afternoon and we're at church. The location changes. This one I think we forget about a lot. I think we forget about both of these a lot. But it's significant. It's significant because it's, it's, it's dramatic. It, no longer, and when, Jesus, when the veil is ripped in the temple, it, it, it gets rid of that system and it says there's a different day. And in Acts 2, when the Spirit comes on and they're speaking in languages and they're in that upper room, the, the symbolism and the beauty of that of the Spirit coming not inside the temple but on a group of people is powerful and has implications for us today. Those are just two small changes that Pastor is going to go into a little bit more next week. But what remains? What is the family roots? What are the roots here? And, and I want to suggest to you that the roots are intergenerational roots, is that when, 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 when Peter is addressing this crowd, saying the people aren't drunk, and he says this, he says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. That we have a connection to a, to a root that we find in the very beginning of Scripture. And I'm going to ask for you just to hang with me for a minute as we see this theme throughout the Scriptures. You may or may not know that the Bible isn't just one continuous story that has different genres, that has different sections, that has different kinds of, kinds of writings. And I'm going to suggest to you that in every type of writing, that in every biblical genre, we will find language and instruction and imagery that speaks to the fact that young and old and across every generation, we are to be gathered together. Starting in Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4, this is a familiar verse. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Verse 7, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. We read that verse, unfortunately, in our context, we, see, we hear it, teach these things to your children. We go to our context assuming that at that time when Israel gathered, that every mom, dad, and two children had their own house. And that when Moses is giving this instruction, there it's mom and dad listening, and they're like, let's go back and let's go teach them to our two kids. That's not the context. That's our culture. That's not the culture of the Scripture. So when it says teach them to the children, I mean, family systems were messy. Aunts, uncles, grandmas, grandpas, neighbors. It was a tribal community. This was a group of people that were on the road for 40 years. And so when it says teach them to your children, probably a better interpretation was teach them to the children. 
There was a communal call. There was a communal call to the older generation to say, it is up to us, it's on us to teach our children the faith, to impress the promises of God on their hearts. It was a communal obligation in Deuteronomy. In the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, next, next section, history books, many of you are familiar with when David was chosen to be king. That Samuel goes to this place and there's all these really strapping, good-looking, tall, strong brothers. And Samuel goes and he's like, surely this is the one. And, and he doesn't get the call. He doesn't get the confirmation. And the Lord says to him, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the story continues and David the scrawny little brother, the child compared to his brothers, is the one that is chosen to be the next king. Because guess what? Children aren't only here to absorb from the older generation. Children are also here to help lead and do incredible things for God, just as David was. We learn in that story that, that the, the, we have categories of who can be most used by God. And our categories and our culture say something like, once you become an adult, then, then you can be used by God. No, no, no. When Samuel chooses David, it's an example to us that our young aren't just there to absorb from us, but our young are there to lead us as well. Psalm 78. These are the wisdom books, the poetry books in the scripture. Listen to this. We will not hide them, speaking of the promises of God, the lessons of the past. It says, we will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. And then it picks up again, so that the next generation would know them and that even the children yet to be born, and in turn they would tell their children, they would put their trust in God and not forget his deeds but would keep his commandments. Psalm 78 teaches us again that there is an obligation of the older generation to hand the faith down to the younger generation. That there's an obligation that this thing moves from one generation to a generation because of the faithfulness of the older generation to invest in the younger generation, to tell them the praiseworthy deeds of God. Psalm 145, one, one generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. Not only is it the obligation of the older generation to share the faith with the younger generation, we read in Psalm 145 and other places through the Scripture that there's a mutuality to generations. That as much as the older generation is tasked with sharing the faith with the younger generations, there's a way that once we come together that, that we learn from one another. That as we listen and as we talk and as we come together, we understand God more fully. I think that's what you saw with Donovan and John, and I know their relationship more than they were able to share. There's a mutuality to it. It's not only what John has done for Donovan, but because Donovan has been in John's life, John's life looks different. John understands God differently. Psalm 145, and the prophets, what we actually read in Acts your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. That even in our prophecy, even in a prophecy that speaks of when this is all done, that God is planning to use young and old together to advance and to fulfill his mission in the world. Young and old together. Jesus and his teaching in the Gospels. My favorite story. 
When it says people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Verse 17, it haunts me. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The tendency of the disciples to think that Jesus had more important things to do than to hang out with some kids. In fact, when the kids and the parents were coming to him, they thought, let's get them out of here. This is disruptive. We've got ministry to do. Jesus gets angry. In another translation, it says he becomes indignant. He becomes angry. And he says, let them come to me. And it's not just so that kids can be around Jesus, but then he throws it back at the adults around and to his disciples. And he says, it's not just about them being with me, but you need to be like them to understand me. Unless you can understand me and come to me as a child, you won't get it. Friends, and now we see in Acts, the Spirit comes, this new beginning of the church. At this very start, we see the language from Joel, and we see the imagery from Joel proclaiming that young and old together are going to dream dreams and see visions, and this thing is going to take off. And how? Men and women... All nations. The Spirit of God not being confined to a location, but together, coming together and breaking through into this world in a new way. Friends, our family roots, the family roots we're talking about this morning at their core through the Scripture are intergenerational. Now, let me explain, because I think sometimes we put a victory really quick and say, if we're all in the same room, that we must be an intergenerational church. And there's a few times a year or at any given Sunday, it's not anybody, everybody's in the same room. And so we are an intergenerational church. Friends, I could go to a movie at three o'clock today and, 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 can have, and, and in the theater, there would be people from all different ages. That doesn't make it an intergenerational gathering. It makes it a multi-generational gathering. There's a difference between multi-generational and intergenerational. Multi-generation is the complexion of a room. Young and old, together. It says nothing about the relationships in the room or the ability to speak to one another or to be into one another's lives. Friends, the Scriptures aren't just multi-generational, they're intergenerational. And it's not just because it's a neat idea. It's not because it's fun or they didn't want to pay for babysitting in the early church. We are an intergenerational family. And there's two aspects of why we see throughout the Scripture. The first aspect is that we are intergenerational so that we can affirm and pass on faith. So that we can affirm faith in one another, that mutuality. So that we can learn from one another. But then there is this piece of passing on the faith. That those who have walked with God longer and farther have an obligation to share that and to build into a new generation to know that and to go. There's a mutuality, one to another, for one another. The other intergenerational reason throughout the Scripture is that we are supposed to live our mission together. Meaning that the way that God's mission gets accomplished is that when young and old and across the generational divides, when we come together to seek God to live out His promises in His world, 
for us to share the gospel together. There's an idea that when we come together and we live our life with Christ together, we are able to do much more than we ever could alone. Always through the scripture. Our intergenerational roots have to do with affirming and passing on the faith and have to do with the idea that we live our mission together. And so my question for you this morning is, how are we doing? How is this working for us at Lake Avenue Church? If you're new this morning, we're glad that you're here, but we're going to talk a little bit about our church. How are we doing in affirming and passing on the faith to the next generation? How are we doing in living our mission together? The latest statistics that I trust say that somewhere between 40 to 50% of kids that grow up at church, once they graduate high school, will leave the church. 40 to 50%, and this isn't specific to Lake, this is United States. That means that one out of every two high school students that you will pass by this morning, that if we caught up with them in three years, half of them will be done with church. Half of them will be done in their relationship with God. We also live at a time where the church, I believe, is more fragmented than it ever has been. That we divide up in insane ways at times. How does this happen? There's a, from a youth ministry perspective, the image that is talked about a lot is the idea of a one-eared Mickey Mouse. So I'd love for you to think about Mickey's big head and then one ear on him, he doesn't have another ear. How did this happen? About 40 or 50 years ago, 50, 60 years ago, parachurch organizations were sprouting up throughout the country and having incredible success with teenagers. Youth for Christ, Young Life. I imagine some of you in this room either worked for them or came to Christ because of them. And the local church was seeing the success that that these parachurch organizations were having and said, we ought to do something ourselves at our church. And so the onset of youth ministry begins. And so before this moment, the church, when it gathers, was just one big circle. It 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 was moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and children. And yeah, there were some specific things based on age, but there were a lot more experiences where the church was all together in one room. And with the great intention of reaching more teenagers for Christ, this ear kind of emerges and it's kind of connected to the church, but it's no longer in the church. And in this ear, we gave them their own room. We gave them their budget. You gave them their own pastor. Thank you. But over time, that ear has gotten farther and farther away and that ear is this own self-sustaining kind of church experience that no longer, it's connected because it shares an address, but it's not connected because of experiences together. And that ear, then there's other ears. Then all of a sudden, you know, children's ministry was always around, but it, was, it wasn't as professionalized as it is now. So children, we need to be as intentional with children as we're being with teenagers. And so let's get a really great children's ministry and get them their own pastor and get them their own part of the room and give them their own experience at church. And then we see men. We're like, well, men have special needs. 
Men are different than women, and so we need a men's ministry, and we need to give them their own calendar, their own programs, their own section in the church. And women, women have their own needs, so we need to give them their own program, their own calendar, their own budget in the church. And then even women, I mean, you could be a young mom, and so if you have kids between zero and five, we have a ministry for you. And if you have kids who are between five and ten, we have a ministry for you. And if you have kids who are teenagers, you're on your own, good luck. And then if you're married, right, we have ministries for young marrieds. And so if you're young married, you have your own budget, your own gathering, your own calendar. If you're young married and you have kids, that's a different thing. And we have so fragmented the church that it's not just one ear anymore. It's like Mickey's got curlers all over. Right? But, but, and all of those are such good intentions. All of those come from a place of care and concern and wanting to meet needs of that particular fragment. And I am not suggesting to you today that we get rid of all of those things, but I am suggesting to you that we have so fragmented as a church that we have no context of being all together anymore. Right? That even what we tell ourselves, I mean, just so you know, we call them at our church divisions. We have a children's and student division. We have an adult ministry division. We have a worship and arts division. We have a missions and evangelism division. We call them divisions, which means that you just, you may or may not connect, and everybody's up to themselves as long as we're about Jesus, and, and we, then, then we're good. And, and a lot of time that works out, but I'm telling you, I, friends, I think that we've lost the ability to be together, we're fragmented, and the fact is, it's not working. 40 to 50% of kids leaving the church, it's not working, and that's not just on the youth ministry. In fact, the most influential group, I can, we are so blessed and you just don't even know it. Right across the street at Fuller's, a place called the Fuller Youth Institute. You may know Dr. Kara Powell. Kara was a pastor at this church. She goes to this church. Her husband, Dave, is on our ministry council. Kara is the executive director of the Fuller Youth Institute. And just a plug, she's a good friend of mine. And Christianity Today named her one of the top 50 most influential women in Christianity. Part of our church. Isn't that incredible? Kara Powell and the Fuller Youth Institute said this 40 to 50% statistic is troublesome. And what is happening with our kids? And so they started a thing called the College Transition Project. And many of our own kids were a part of that in our church. And it took kids in their senior year of high school, about 500 of them around the country, active kids who self-identified as passionate followers of Jesus. These weren't kids who just came to church every now and then. These were leaders. These were kids whose identity in high school, they were about Jesus. And it followed those kids three years into college and met with them and surveyed them and met and find out after three years into college, what are the factors that led to a kid keeping their faith after high school and what were the factors that led to them leaving their faith in high school and why there's not a silver bullet through the whole thing. The most shocking thing, the number one reason out of all these variables, small groups, Liking your youth pastor, missions trip, summer camp, all the things that we normally do in youth ministry, the number one factor that led to a kid having long-term faith was how many intergenerational relationships they had at their home church and how many experiences, how often they had experiences in intergenerational worship. More than anything else. And it shouldn't be surprising. The book now, the final book of that is called Sticky Faith. It's an incredible book. I recommend you get it. But that shouldn't be surprising to us because if you think about it, the siloed model to ministry is kind of brutal. 
Because it tells a kid that you are important and that you matter and that we care about you. But the day you graduate high school, you're out. Good luck. On to the next fragment. On to the next thing. And it makes sense to me, once you think about it, that if a kid is rooted and connected with relationships in the church that are beyond just the youth ministry or the children's ministry, that when they're gone, they're actually missed. That they're known. And that when they come home, they have a place to arrive and they have people that know them and they're cared for. More than any other variable... Intergenerational relationships, intergenerational worship leads to more long-term faith in kids. Friends, I am afraid that the idea of faith and mission, which is the primary reason for intergenerational relationships, are losing in our church. And our church, I mean across the nation, but our church as well. We are losing faith and mission to preference and to isolation. I mean, preference. We start fragmenting based on what age you are or what you like or who's in the similar demographic as you, all of a sudden church becomes about what you like. And maybe many of us, and I fall into this trap too, we gauge the morning whether there were enough things about church that I liked. And I read throughout the Scriptures that that's not really the motivation to come together. The motivation to come together is to affirm faith in one another, to hand down the faith to the next generation. But friends, preference preference, what works for me, what I want to happen at church, what kind of music I like, preference on all spectrums, preference from our young, preference from the old, preference from everybody in the middle, is more important than handing down faith often. And isolation. I think one of the lies our culture tells us is that we, should, we, we have the best chance of having good friendships with those that we have something in common with friends lots of us in this room have one thing in common that should trump anything else i like eating out at certain restaurants and i really like watching golf on tv but you know what what brings us together is there's a few of you that really like that stuff too that doesn't mean we're going to be great friends the bigger common bond that we have in this room is that we're all sinners saved by grace amen That all of us, no matter our age, no matter our financial status, no matter our anything, that each one of us in this room need Jesus. And that commonality should be the thing that draws us together against all those other differences. And that there's a beauty that happens when that happens. But preference and isolation. In fact, I will tell you, I think there are entire churches that are built on preference and isolation. I mean, we've taught our kids this. I could, I could tell you about 10 churches in the Los Angeles area that are church plants, and there's nobody over 30 years old a part of that church. And it's so easy to look at that expression and to go, like, they're missing out. But we've taught that. We've said that you gather based on what you like and what works for you. And guess what? It's not working. So... How might we, as Lake Avenue Church, get back to our roots? Get back to the roots of not just the Scripture, but I believe because I listen and you've told me the story that these intergenerational roots run deep at 393 North Lake Avenue. And that it might just be in our more recent history, the last 30, 40 years, that we've gotten so extreme in these silos. How do we bring it back without just blowing the whole thing up? Because I will tell you, and it's not just because I want a job. There's good purpose to the silos. 
But we've got to find a better rhythm with this. We've got to find moments to be together. If our only experience is in our specialized area, it it just doesn't work. How do we get back to affirming and passing on the faith at our church? Friends, and I'm going to tell you, I think the number one way is to let our preferences out the door. If we come to church because of what we like or what works for us, we're missing it. Um, someone burned me a CD, and I, I'm, I'm terrible. I have the same six CDs in my car probably for the last four years. I just don't change them. And, and one CD is a mixed CD of different worship songs that somebody made for me. And when, I, when Henry was three, he's almost five, um, and I would drive him to school, to preschool, I would always put on this worship CD and just let it run. And, and there was track 11. Track 11 on the CD, not my favorite song. I, I didn't like it. I, I, I do now. But I, it, it just bothered me, and, and, and I don't know why, but when I was alone in the car, I would just skip past track 11. But when Henry was in the car at three years old and I would skip it, he would ask me to go back. And so we st- kept listening to track 11. Right, and I remember one morning, and I, I remember it, <laughs> Washington and Lake, right at Food for Less. Henry's in the back seat, and we are coming down Lake Avenue, and I hear my three-year-old son sing, here is our king, here is our God, here, here is our love, here is our God who's come to bring us back to him. He is the one, he is Jesus. You know what, I forgot that I hated track 11. Track 11 soon became my favorite song, right, because... It's not about my preferences once I hear the praises of Jesus coming off a three-year-old. To see someone else experience God is much more powerful than whether I like a song or not. And friends, I'm afraid that our proximity to one another doesn't allow us to see. That's why we tried to do something different this morning. That's why before the hymn, we wanted somebody to stand up and go, this is what this song means to me, so that our high school students who are here can maybe engage that song differently because now they know that this song means something to somebody. And when Sean shared about what the song meant for him at the beginning of the service as a high school student, that maybe some of you who don't like that song, all of a sudden that song's a little more tolerable. Because why? Because Sean meets Jesus through that song. Because my three-year-old son taught me about Jesus in the car that day. And now track 11 is the first song that we sing all the time when we're in the car. Because when we're around each other, our preferences go out the door and we begin to affirm the faith again in one another. We learn from one another. We hand down the faith better. The last two weeks, everybody keeps talking about how great Easter was around here. And wasn't it a great day? You realize what I think makes Easter great besides that Jesus was resurrected and we remember that and that's huge? But we were all together that day. There were no classes meeting. There was no youth ministry. We had the nursery open for our youngest children. But when you walked on campus, you had families saying good morning. You had third graders sitting in this this orientation before with their moms and their dads excited to go serve together. That that one morning our church looks different because all of a sudden the fragments don't exist and we're all together again. And everybody goes, that was marvelous. We should do that more. But I'm afraid to tell you that when we try to do that more, sometimes the drive inside of so many of us for our preferences, what do you mean? You want, to, you want me to cancel our class? What if I told you, church, what if I told you that we, if we, we have proof, 
proof that says if we canceled everything one time a month and did Easter together as a church once a month, that that would change that 40 to 50% statistic and that more kids will keep their faith. Could you let your preferences go? God, I pray we can. I pray we can. Green Oak Ranch, probably the most intergenerational thing we have going. You should look at that. Because for the weekend, guess what? I've never gone to Green I've gone to Green Oak Ranch, but I've never gone to Green Oak Ranch to be the youth pastor, to be the person who is in charge of children's ministry for the weekend. It's messy. Kids are everybody's kids. It's probably very Deuteronomy. Go to Green Oak Ranch. There's ways to do that, to be the church again. We've got to get back to affirming and passing on the faith to one another. And we have to lose our preference. The other thing, we have to get back to living our mission together. That's the point of what's going to happen tonight at 5 o'clock. Tonight at 5 o'clock, we're calling it the upper room, and we're going to gather a few times during the Acts series as an entire church so that we together as a church can hear from God together. That we can worship God together. Where in the busyness of Lake Avenue Church are we ever all together with nothing else going on? And we come and we want to hear from God for our church. And we want to hear from God and we're asking Him for a breakthrough in our church. We're asking Him for a breakthrough in our lives. And wouldn't it be wonderful to ask for that breakthrough across the generations so that when He speaks, that we all know He spoke and we move forward together. That's what gets us in trouble sometimes. Right? I mean, I've been here a long time and I hope you know my heart. I, you're going to have to kick me out of here. Because we're messy, but I love it. It's family, right? But how many times have we had struggled at times because one particular fragment in the church, one particular silo, heard something from God and tried to share that news with the rest of the church, but the other fragments are like, I don't know, we didn't hear that. And it prevents us from moving forward. Friends, we are asking God for a breakthrough in our church and we are gathering in this room together tonight at 5 o'clock, next week at 5 o'clock, because we want God to speak to all of us so that when he speaks and he tells us to do something, that we move together. And we're not going to just... And that we can move boldly and quickly. That we can be responsive to the God. Instead of going, okay, if he's telling us that, that's going to be three years of planning and we're going to need some communication and we're going to have to do special this, special that. Friends, come on. 40 to 50% of our kids will not follow Jesus after high school. I think there's something important here. And instead of talking about it, let's do it. Let's get together. Let's seek God. And I'll show you my cards. I want God to break through this church in a variety of ways. But one of the ways I want him to break through, and I'm asking him, and many of us have been asking, and last night at Saturday service, I was blown away with how many people came up to me and said, that's been our prayer too. I want God to bring us together. Our identity as a church is better when we're together.